Hello, listeners. It's Laurel here in the intro with you. We have a special treat for you today. We're bringing you our interview and conversation with M from Verbal Diorama about the movie Labyrinth from 1986. We had such a great time sitting down with M, and we are super excited to share this interview with you. While I've got you here, there is a ton going on in the Midnight Myth universe right now. Earlier this week, we sat down with the Bingeables podcast to uh, work on an episode together for their November binge, the Hulu limited series Looking for Alaska. And we had a wonderful time doing that as well. So make sure you check out the Bingeables podcast wherever you find your podcasts and watch Looking for Alaska on Hulu so you can share in our binge. Uh, Otherwise, it is getting close to the holidays, so we have tons of merch in the store for you. Make sure you head over to our Teespring store or to our website, midnightmyth.com, and click shop so that you can stock up on merch for that Midnight Myth lover in your life, or let's be honest, yourself. And if you're already in the spirit of giving but don't need anything in return, consider supporting us on Patreon. Also on that website, midnightmyth.com, you can find a link to our Patreon And if you pledge a dollar a month, $5 a month, whatever you can possibly give, you'll get discounts on that merch store. You might get bonus episodes. You might get a shout out on the pod. And most of all, you'll get the satisfaction of knowing that you helped us to continue to make the podcast. So consider supporting us there. We also have a giveaway coming up with the Pop Venture family from YouTube. So make sure you like and subscribe their videos over on YouTube. We will link to them in the show notes and stay tuned throughout November so that you can find out how to enter that very special Star Wars themed Funko Pop giveaway. It's going to be amazing and we cannot wait uh, to share those items with you, lucky listeners and viewers of the Pop Venture family. I think that's about it for the intro and announcements, but if you want to stay tuned and stay apprised of what's going on in the Midnight Myth world, make sure you follow us on social media. We are on Twitter at The Midnight Myth. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast, and we would love to chat with you. So let us know what you think. Let us know what episodes you want to hear in the future or just how you're doing. We would love to talk to you. If you like what you hear, make sure you subscribe on whatever podcatcher you listen on and leave us a rating or a review if you have five minutes. It really helps us get out there, stay on the charts, and find new audiences. Uh, Thank you so much and enjoy our conversation with M from Verbal Diorama about Labyrinth. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth, and somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth.
Welcome back to The Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite podcast where we analyze and discuss history, mythology, and philosophy, and how they inform our popular storytelling. As always, I am very excited to be here today for many reasons, but the biggest reason that I am excited to be here today, we have our first ever guest co-host on the podcast. We have the lovely, the talented, the amazing podcaster from, I don't know actually where you live in England, from England. (laughs) (laughs) We have M from Verbal Diorama. M, welcome to the Midnight Myth. It's the middle. It's the middle of England. (laughs) Gotcha. We're looking for an exact address here. So if you could just go ahead (laughs) and volunteer that information. Yeah, sure. So it's number 17. uh, (laughs) Number four, Privet Drive. Yeah, I almost just assumed London. So I was almost going to say London. I had to stop. I'm like, I don't know where you live in England. So... Um, welcome to the Midnight Myth. We're really excited to have you here. I think, uh, why don't you give us, uh, uh, the Midnight Myth listeners, just a brief introduction, Em. Is that cool? Sure. Uh, okay. So I'm Em, and I don't live anywhere near London, uh, unfortunately, but um, I host um, a podcast called Verbal Diorama, and what I like to do is I like to look at the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't, which if you've listened to my little theme song that I've got on my podcast, it basically reiterates the whole movies you know, movies you don't um, thing. And um, yeah, I've not been doing it. Uh, I've actually not even been doing it a year, which is a bit crazy because I've had a bit of a crazy kind of nine months uh, that I've been doing it so far. But um but yeah, it's um, I really enjoy what I do. I really, really enjoy obviously talking to other podcasts and other podcasters and getting to know people. And obviously getting to know Derek and Laurel has been an absolute joy um, because I, I I just I love listening to I love listening to you guys genuinely. Um, and I know that I always kind of say, um, oh, you know, I love the episode you did on so and so. I love the episode you recently did on Viva Vendetta because that's one of my favourite movies um so uh yeah i um i very much enjoyed that and um and yeah we, we i think we kind of like the same sort of stuff i think which which obviously helps as well um and um yeah i guess if anyone wants to find me um and talk to me i'm pretty much open to talking about anything and everything um i'm you know you can catch me twitter instagram facebook um it's all at verbal diorama um and if anyone wants to Find me, follow me, subscribe, whatever. Um, that would be pretty awesome. So that's basically, that's that's kind of the little spiely bit out of the way. <laughs> Sweet. And uh, just thank you for coming on The Midnight Myth. Um, today, we are going to be analyzing and discussing everybody's favorite creepy romance from the 80s. The Jim Henson Company produced Labyrinth. So all things and everything Labyrinth today I'm really excited. Laurel, how are you feeling? I'm feeling good. This is a a film I think that means a lot to all three of us and that we can all find uh, just some beautiful themes, amazing characters, great images and puppets. There's just so much to mine. We can't take any of it for granted. So I am stoked. Yeah. 
Well, I think we're going to structure this one since this is our first, you know, guest host. We're just going to structure this pretty open. I prepared a few questions that I really want to get M's take on, and then we can all just discuss them. So let's just roll up our sleeves and get started here. Uh, First question for you, M. When did you first see the labyrinth? Um, Okay, so it's a it's an interesting question because I know I definitely didn't see it at the cinema. Uh, because there were only a few films that I actually went to see at the cinema when I was a kid. So it was probably I saw it on like, home video. Um, I can't remember exactly when. I'm, I'm kind of thinking it was maybe about, you know, age 10, 11, that sort of age. Because I certainly remember feeling very strong feelings towards a certain person. <laughs> In the movie, oh, um, <laughs> it was Huggle. <laughs> of course, right? Yeah, I, I mean, think we're all on the same yeah, page here with Huggle. He is hot. Uh, you know, I love me. I love me some Huggle. Um, but yeah, so I think I kind of feel like this movie for me was because it was that sort of age. It was it was almost like a little bit of a sexual awakening, which is interesting because when you look at the movie and the character of Sarah, it's it's kind of a nice. Um, comparison, really, because that's kind of really what Sarah is going through. Um, in the, I think she's obviously classified as a bit older, maybe than that. But um, but yeah, you know, when you're kind of coming into like puberty and stuff like that, you do start like getting these kind of weird feelings, and you don't really know what it all means. But yeah, um, David Bowie um, and his wonderful performance will forever live with me. <laughs> genuinely i i i have a lot i have a lot of love for this movie generally um but that kind of being one of the very first i don't know i guess i guess you could call it a bit of an on-screen crush because it kind of was a bit of an on-screen crush um and obviously the man's a, a legend so kind of introduced me to his music and yeah um so what that's a very long-winded way of saying, well, Derek, I think it was when it was I was about 11, but that's my answer. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, for me, that was my introduction to David Bowie and got me into David Bowie's music as well. Like, I feel like Labyrinth, it's a lot like Star Wars. I can't tell you the first time that I've seen it, but it's been a part of my life for as long as I can remember. You know, I've always had Labyrinth. I've always had the music of the Labyrinth. It was one of my favorite movies when I was a kid. And we just went to the local video rental store because the town we were in was so small, it didn't even have a blockbuster. And we rented it one night as a family, and it's been a family movie ever since. Yeah, uh, it was. it's funny because it's a little different for me. I, for some reason, didn't see it when I was... Uh, fairly young and ended up seeing it when I was closer to Sarah's age. I was probably 16 maybe when I saw this movie because it was back in theaters for some kind of event that a movie theater near me was having. So I went and saw it as like a a cult sort of midnight movie kind of showing. And I remember feeling, you know, I don't have the same kind of nostalgia goggles as somebody who might have seen this a lot younger, but obviously I have a ton of love for puppetry and for Jim Henson and for the Muppets and for David Bowie. So this wasn't my introduction to him necessarily, but it was a dimension of him that uh, just felt very natural and like it should have been part of my understanding of David Bowie all along. But I could relate to Sarah on so many levels because of that. 
Yeah, definitely. Well, it goes without saying, everyone listening, we're going to spoil the living hell out of this movie. So we're going to start, you know, transitioning into analysis. If you haven't seen The Labyrinth, I don't know who you are or where you've been, but watch it before we continue. So spoiler wall is up. And obviously, I mean, to me, Labyrinth is like a a classic of my childhood. And sometimes when you revisit a classic from your childhood as an adult, you might have a different perspective or opinion on it. So I would like to ask both both Laurel and M here. um, And why don't you chime in first? Do you think this movie holds up? Actually, think it does hold up. Um, I think that first of all, obviously, um, you—it it is essentially a coming-of-age story, and coming-of-age stories generally they do they do stand the test of time because everyone has that tricky transition between sort of childhood and adulthood, and that is essentially what this story is about. Um, and it's. It's also a story about, like I mentioned earlier, it's a story about finding your sexuality. Um, and again, that's something that I think everyone can can relate to. I think that a lot of the a lot of the effects, obviously, when we're talking about a movie that is there's a lot of practical effects in this movie, and the practical effects are just, you know, chef's kiss. They are Oh my god, so gorgeous. Um and 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 so wonderfully done. Um all of the puppeteer work is just phenomenal. You know, if you look at this movie now and you look at a character like Hoggle and and the sheer number of people it took to actually bring Hoggle to life. And it's it's just an absolute marvel. It really is. And it's it's the sort of stuff that you just don't get in movies nowadays because everything is cgi and there is some this was actually the first movie that had a cgi animal in the movie so the owl at the start of the movie that kind of transitions into a real owl that was the first cgi creature that was ever put in a movie and it kind of shows <laughs> you know it yeah. kind of does look a bit dated a um, little 1986 yeah but it's it this movie just feels completely magical and it's got this wonderful quality to it that I, I really genuinely think is timeless. I think you could put this movie on for a, a young person or a teenager nowadays and I think that they would still get something out of it. And I think that that is mainly because of how wonderful it still looks, um, you know, and, and also how much you can kind of still relate to the character of Sarah um, yeah, she's a brat, <laughs> because, but we were all brats when we were her age. You know, we were all terrible to our parents or our step parents or, you know, so I, th- I genuinely think that even though she is a brat and looking at it as an adult, you kind of go, well, you know, what's your damage, <laughs> Sarah? Because <laughs> she really does have this bee in her bonnet to her stepmother. Um, but we were all like that you know and i think i think it holds up remarkably well i i would really be interested to see to hear the opinions actually of someone who is kind of the sort of age that we were collectively you know around about that sort of age to watch this movie and and to kind of hear what they think but i think they would actually appreciate it because i think it's great <laughs> I, really I think do. that's i think that's really well said there is something about this movie that uh, I don't know if this is going to make sense, but it's sort of like 
uh, it, it went through its uh, its actual release. It had this period of if you had watched it in this like certain period, it would have been completely absurd and outrageous and the writing would have struck you as just totally too stylized or totally unbelievable and now it's kind of circled back around to holding up I don't know if that makes any sense but there's something about and this is just maybe from my own perspective watching it as uh, a teenager and a young adult I uh, had a sort of feeling of distance from it and watching it today in 2019 I feel a lot closer to it. Mm. And I think I have maybe embraced my inner Sarah in some ways and started to feel the actual like power and majesty of lines like, you have no power over me yeah. that she gets to say to Jareth. There's something about um, kind of revisiting it without the sort of teenage or young adult angst and irony that makes this movie uh, stand on its own in a in a writing way. I think there's no question as to whether or not the puppetry and the visual effects hold up because it, they're just outstanding. Like it's truly a marvel and an achievement, but I think the story has, uh, has actually become more relevant over time. Interesting thoughts. Yeah. I, I agree with everyone here. I personally think it holds up watching it as an adult. I, I not only does it hit my nostalgia strings really hard because I know all the words to all the songs. I can't wait to see all of my favorite scenes, but I, I do think there is a particular magic in Jim Henson's uh, way that he can create these worlds and breathe so much life into so many of these things, uh, these puppets. And uh, I genuinely think it holds up well. I think the music is still just as catchy and fun as it was to me now as an adult as it was when I was a kid. And I largely think it is an iconic coming-of-age story. I think there is a quality to the narrative that rings true and I do think can ring true to multi multiple generations. I think it's going to be, for me, if Laurel and I are ever lucky enough to have kids, it's going to be one of the movies I can't wait to share with uh, potential future children. I think there's a lot of families out there. You know, my mom loves this movie, and she showed it to my nephew, who at the time was five and so he was a, maybe just a little too young, but for about half of the movie, he absolutely adored it. And then the other half, he just kind of lost interest um, just because he's five and doesn't have a really good attention span. Right. But I think this is a movie that's going to endure generationally. I think it's going to be like a Wizard of Oz, you know, doesn't do great at the box office, but everybody loves and endures it and in, um, loves and adores it, pardon me, and will for generations. That's great. Yeah. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit. So we all we all agree it holds up. Definitely. So let's let's jump into you know. And you started some ideas with Sarah. I mean, Sarah is the main character. She appears to have like a loving and good home, but she is obviously in rebellion against it. She doesn't want to babysit her baby brother. She wants to just go out and play and pretend to be in the Goblin Palace. What are some thoughts that we have here about Sarah? Let's kick it off with her. As a character, how are we feeling? Laurel, you mentioned that you love the no power over me. So why don't you kick it off here? I would love to kick it off. Um, Sarah, again, is is a character who I kind of had to come around on because Em, like you said, she is, she's annoying. She is petulant. She is angry. She has all of this emotion in her that... Uh, I, I think read certain ways can put one off, but is so truthful to that age. I think she's 15. 
uh, when this movie is happening. It's so real. It's so, um, the world around her is actually quite hospitable and yet she, uh, feels all of this anger toward it. And I, I, I don't want to see that in myself, but I do. Uh, and especially at that age I did. There's just a couple of things, uh, about her too, that I just deeply connect with, like her, uh, desire to, you know, run into a fantasy world, her, you know, her theatrical, her dramatic impulses. She has a dog named Merlin and a teddy bear named Lancelot. So she's definitely someone I can relate to because I'm obsessed with the Arthurian legend. But uh, she's got those aspects of her that are uh, deeply drawn into this kind of magical thinking. And then when she's confronted with like, you have to babysit your little brother. Uh, your stepmother's actually not a witch. She's kind of a nice lady who just wants you to have a nice life. That conflicts and clashes with her sort of fantastical idea of what her life is supposed to be. Um, and I think her arc is one that is really quite transcendent. We watch her go from being this petulant young woman and uh, become someone who feels self-possessed and feels powerful and feels able to look at an authority figure and say, I'm my own person. Uh, so I have nothing but love for her. Very cool. Em, uh, what do you think? Um, well, I mean, really, Laurel's just kind of summarized everything that I kind of really love about Sarah. Um, and I do genuinely feel like anyone can relate to Sarah because it doesn't matter how you grew up. You could have grown up in a palace. Um, and I still think that when you reach that age, you will want to rebel and you will want to, um, you'll always believe the grass is greener, no matter how you grow up. And I'd certainly feel with Sarah that she doesn't obviously, she obviously wants, she, sorry, she doesn't want, this additional responsibility. She, this was obviously uh, a situation she didn't want. Um, she has uh, a stepmother and a new baby brother. And obviously she didn't want the stepmother. Um, and if there's actually a, a full volume comic, uh, which kind of goes into the background of Sarah's life, and it kind of gives you a bit more of an understanding of why Sarah's feeling the way she feels. Um, she, um, uh, so her mother has left the family home and her father has uh, essentially remarried to a very nice lady um, because, to be honest, her stepmother comes across as an absolutely lovely woman. I mean, right? yeah. absolutely, she is kind, you know, she is, uh, you know, reasonably respectful of Sarah. She suggests that maybe Sarah should date, which, I mean, when you're 15, I don't know whether... I don't think my mother was encouraging me to date at that age, but okay. Um, but she seems like a perfectly reasonable woman. And obviously her father and stepmother have since welcomed um, a new uh, baby. Um, and obviously Sarah's gone from being an only child, being, you know, essentially the apple of her father's eye. And now she has to kind of share that space with a baby brother. Um, and there's obviously a considerable age gap as well. Um and so, obviously, Sarah's stepmother is asking her, you know, can you babysit? And Sarah's obviously whining about it. And, oh, you always ask me to do it. And whether whether that is true or not, I think everyone kind of 
exaggerates a little when they're a teenager. Oh, you always ask me to do this. Um, when in actual fact, you know, the parents don't. So, um, so I do think that's incredibly relatable. But I think what's most relatable about Sarah is, and, you know, I, I hate to use cliches, but it's her journey. You know, it's the journey that she goes on um, because she could choose not to rescue her baby brother um, from the Goblin King. Um, but she chooses to go on this journey and she basically chooses to face off against the Goblin King. And she she kind of feels this responsibility for this little baby who obviously has no way of looking after himself. And I feel very much like it's Sarah's... It is essentially, like we said, it's a coming-of-age story. It's Sarah's journey from being a child to being, you know, to taking the next step to adulthood and, you know, remembering that, yes, it's good to have dreams and it's, you know, hey... I am the first person who will retreat into, you know, my own little kind of fantasy dream world where, you know, I'm doing really cool things and I'm probably with Keanu Reeves or something. And of course, <laughs> of course, <laughs> of course, um, you know, I can neither confirm nor deny that it's me who he's currently dating. But, you know, um, but I so I can completely relate because even now, you know, I'm in my 30s and I still I still feel sometimes like I I just want to live in that fantasy world because in that fantasy world, you know, I do everything right and I'm the best and, you know, everything goes great for me. And that's essentially what Sarah is, is doing. She's She's choosing this fantasy world, but in the end, obviously, it's real life that kind of wins out. And that's that is essentially the the path to adulthood because no one wants to be an adult. No one wants to be a grown-up and face grown-up responsibilities like, you know, work and taxes and insurance and all of those boring things because, hey, no one wants to do that. But you've, you've got to, you know, you've got to put away, sometimes put away childish things. But I think it's important that what Labyrinth teaches us is that, yeah, you grow up, you put your toys away, but they're still there. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, it, it, it's so well said in that final scene when Sarah is returning to the real world. She is, uh, you know, returning her baby brother to his crib. She is facing the fact that she is a, a, a woman of the world. She is crossing that threshold into adulthood. And then she sees Hoggle in the mirror, you know, and then she sees her, her friends that she's made on this journey who say, we can be here should you need us. And it's a, a wonderful affirmation of the idea that, yes, we do have to grow up and face insurance and taxes and all of the things that we don't want to, but we can still have uh, our memories of our childhood. We can still have our childhood friends. We can still hold on to those things that made our eyes wide, that made us wonder, that made us curious, that made us uh, hopeful as children. It's beautiful. Yeah, I, I agree with all points here. You know, a few things I'd like to point out about Sarah is that Sarah in the very beginning approaches this this problem, this labyrinth that she has to navigate through, which can mean multiple different things metaphorically. But if we take it at its most literal level, she has to walk through a maze 
Otherwise, her brother is going to be in terrible jeopardy slash kidnapped by an evil tyrant. And her first core set of assumptions are, I'm a teenager. I'm awesome. I can get this done. It's going to be easy. She approaches this problem with a lot of naivety. And one of the things that the worm says to her at the very beginning is like, you can't take anything for granted here. And what I'm amazed by the character is that how quickly she internalizes that lesson and says, hey, I came to this problem with a core set of assumptions. If I'm going to fix this problem, I have to unlearn those assumptions. And to me, that is very much like any great intellectual journey. You start off thinking in particular when you're young that you know everything, that you can do anything. And then suddenly you walk into a labyrinth and next thing you know, up is down, left is right. All of your plans go awry. So she marks her directions with her lipstick only to find out that it's completely unfair, but there are these goblins just turning them in other directions. She thinks she found her way through a puzzle quite easily that lends her into that hallway of hands that drop her in an oubliette. Her greatest friend to help her, Huggle, is a duplicitous agent who's also working for her enemy. And at the end of it, when she finally starts to, you know what, things aren't what they seem. My core set of assumptions are going to sometimes be incorrect, and I need to approach situations with open-mindedness, with open heart, with a caring and thoughtful mind. And when she learns that lesson, it's when she finally gets to the bog of eternal stench, and Sir Didymus will not let them pass. And there's a fight ensues. And Sarah's just like, hold on. Instead of just like charging through here and just having this battle, let me just ask this qu- this character a question. What is your actual oath? Nobody can cross this bridge unless they have my permission. She goes, can I have your permission? And she turns a foe into one of her her best allies in the battle to come. And I love that journey that she goes through. And I love that to me, it's a metaphor as a, you know, someone who fancies himself a, an intellectual that says that you can't go to every problem with the same set of core assumptions. In fact, each problem needs to be looked at as an individual problem. You don't have all of the answers, but if you think your way through them, you're going to get out of the bog of shit. And I really enjoy that aspect of her character. I love that. And it shows how much of a debt is owed to Lewis Carroll and Alice in Wonderland in this story, because that's also a story about a young girl being displaced into a kind of nightmarish world where the logic that she has been learning in Victorian England does not hold up, that she has to unlearn her set of assumptions. She has to be able to uh, think on her feet, problem solve, and get into the minds of uh, creatures she never thought she could have imagined. That's great. Yeah, definitely. Any thoughts on Sarah that we'd like to share before moving on? Em, how you feeling? Do I have any additional thoughts about Sarah? Um, Only I think that uh, obviously Sarah is played by Jennifer Connelly. Um, Jennifer Connelly, obviously quite famous. Um, She's been in all sorts of movies. She's kind of, she feels to me very much like an actress who's kind of always been in the background more than in the forefront. But I feel like the roles that she's chosen are always kind of quite thoughtful roles. Um, she's married to Paul Bettany, 
um, as well. Um, and um, I know she's done some bits and pieces for the MCU kind of most recently. But I think it's really interesting that Jennifer Connelly was 14 years old. And normally, oh, sorry, when she filmed this movie, um, obviously she was playing against not only one of the biggest rock stars ever, um, but obviously a man who was pretty much uh, essentially more than double her age. And she really holds her own. You know, she's 14 years old and she's filming scenes with David Bowie and she more than holds her own against him. And you genuinely feel like that they have... um, it's a bit weird, I think, to talk about chemistry um, because because of her age. Um, and you kind of think, well, yeah, it's, it's kind of teetering a little bit on something that we don't probably really want to talk about, I guess, um, because she is 14, he is considerably older. But they kind of do have a chemistry. It's, and it's not necessarily like a romantic chemistry, but there obviously is a slight romantic element to their on-screen relationship, um, which I think obviously we can talk about, I guess, in a bit more detail later when we talk about, you know, David Bowie specifically. But I just think Jennifer Connelly, um, obviously she was one of many kind of young actresses who was up for the role, um, but I believe she was the youngest um, and... To be that young, because normally if you're if you want your character to be 15, 16, however old Sarah's supposed to be, you would normally cast someone who's maybe a couple of years older. Um, And instead, so she the role was kind of up for uh, the likes of people like Sarah Jessica Parker, Laura Dern, Helena Bonham Carter, um, Marissa Tomei, Mia Sara, Jane Krakowski. So all of these people were a little bit older, I think, than Jennifer Connolly was. Um, so the fact that she kind of not only got the part, but she really kind of, you know, hit it out of the park, really, um, considering her age. Um, and she'd had a little bit of experience, but not much. Um, I do kind of feel like... This was obviously the the start of a very kind of illustrious career. Um, And um, I I just think I thought that was specifically worth mentioning because I think she's I think she's really good. Yeah, she's tremendous. And I remember reading somewhere that the casting directors and everybody who was working on this film wanted her because she perfectly encapsulated what they call, I think, the twilight years between girlhood and adulthood. There's something just very specific about that. And it's it's in what she looks like. It's in her performance. She has this very sort of magnetic energy that she brings to the role that plays perfectly off of David Bowie. Yeah, I, yeah, she rocks. What else am I going to say? You, you're both right. She's an awesome, awesome at what she does. I believe she's an Oscar winner. Is she an Oscar winner? Uh, she's at least uh, been nominated, right? Was she nominated was, for Requiem or? I thought she was nominated for, for Beautiful Mind. A Beautiful Mind. Mind, yeah, I believe so. Yeah, oh. I, don't, I don't know if she won that, mm-hmm. but she was definitely nominated. Yeah, so I'm pretty certain that she, she was nominated. She may have won. But yeah, I mean, I think she's one of like the the top actresses out there. She did win, yeah. And it was for A Beautiful Mind? yeah. Thank you, Internet. We appreciate you. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing like uh, just, you know, Googling it real quick. Yeah. So she won for Beautiful Mind, which is a 
but she's fantastic in that movie. That movie can have some problems and people have debated it, but what you can't argue is that she is absolutely phenomenal and she's phenomenal in this. You know, I didn't realize she was actually a teenager when they shot this movie that had to have been in insane. Like I just naturally assumed she was probably at least 18 and here you actually have an actual, you know, underage girl acting with David Bowie in this beautiful world that Jim Henson created. So that's phenomenal that she was able to pull that off. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah. Because that had to have been a lot of pressure for a young person. You know, like, yeah. I can't imagine that's easy. For sure. And she's also, so she's not just playing against David Bowie. She's playing against like a, a little woman in a suit being controlled by uh, remote controls off screen. She's playing off, uh, you know, a, a big Ludo monster. She's playing off of uh, an entire world that is alive through puppeteers. And she's the only live actor in a lot of those scenes. And so that's a very specific and very particular kind of thing to have to carry. Yeah, yeah. totally. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about our favorite Goblin King, Jareth. I'd like to just open this up here. Thoughts on Jareth on the character. And uh, Em, why don't you uh, kick this off? Now that we've re- all rewatched and we're discussing it, what do you think about our antagonist in this film? Well, okay, the first thing is as soon as you said the name Jareth, I will tell you that a massive smile just kind of <laughs> grew on my face because... <laughs> I guess that's how he makes me feel like um, and I think that I mean, first of all, I, I, I'm i going to, you know, uh, talk about the elephant in the room because he's really sexy. Like, really, so really sexy. sexy. Like it, it is it is not it's not normal how and sexy he is. It's it's bizarre because. You know, if I'm in a bar, for example, and there's a guy and he's got, you know, the big, massive 80s blonde hair. And, you know, if he's wearing, you know, really tight leggings, um, you know, lycra, I probably wouldn't be attracted to him, you know, in, in a bar or in a club or wherever I am. But I don't know if it's the fact that it's obviously this fantasy world and he's the Goblin King and obviously he's a powerful man or whether it's the fact that it's David Bowie, who's just an incredible artist, you know, who can, who's obviously got this androgynous look, who can be so many different characters, obviously with his music. Um, You know, he was, he portrayed many different characters kind of throughout his career. Um, And, or if it's just the character of Jareth and how he talks and it's, but there's, there's something about Jareth that I think that any heterosexual woman or gay man, indeed, I think would just find like really a little bit irresistible. Like this, there's something about him that really kind of draws you in. And I don't know whether that was the reason why they went specifically with David Bowie, because obviously there were, all sorts of people up for the role. There was so um, yeah, because I Prince is obviously um, a lot shorter in stature than I believe David Bowie is. I don't know exactly, um, but I kind of feel like David Bowie is a kind of um, he's a bit more of like a demanding presence, kind of, especially when you're talking about 
goblins and goblins have to be of a certain height. Um, perhaps that's why Prince didn't get the gig, I'm not sure. But I believe um, Freddie Mercury was also in the running. And I think he probably could have done quite a good job as well. Um, but the other person who I'm really glad didn't get the gig was Michael Jackson. Because can you imagine we are what so it would be like? Blessed. We are I so mean, blessed that we dodged that bullet. Oh, my God. It. It's a movie that I think everyone kind of remembers quite fondly, mainly because of David Bowie and, and his performance. But it would literally be derided and it would be cast into the ether of movie hell if Michael Jackson was in this role. Because knowing what people know about Michael Jackson and the baby dangling and anything else that Michael Jackson did or did not do, um, you know, yeah, it's... Um, it wouldn't be great. So thank heavens that Jim Henson and the team behind Labyrinth decided on David Bowie because he brings this kind of natural charisma. He brings this literal off the chart sex appeal. And I still don't know how and why he does it, but he does it. Um, and um, and actually, he's a good actor. And I think that he has, people have kind of, they, when you talk about pop stars or rock stars kind of transitioning into acting, a lot of the time I think they kind of, you know, get the elbow, so to speak. Like, generally a lot of the time they're not great. But I think David Bowie, um, I, think he's, I think he's really, really good. He portrays this goblin king who is, you know, so power hungry and, and so desperately wants to control this young woman. Um, and, um, and like Laurel mentioned earlier, the fact that in the end he can't, that's kind of when it all starts crumbling down because he wanted to have the control. He doesn't have the control. And then it's, that's it. You know, once she realizes that she can stand up to him, she does stand up to him. Um, and, um, but I mean, I think someone else needs to talk about Jareth because otherwise it's just going to be me rolling <laughs> in the corner. Ever and ever. It's only forever, Em. It's not long at all. Um, really not. Yeah, no, truly he... Uh, so David Bowie means a lot to us. You know, Derek and I, our first dance at our wedding was Heroes by David Bowie. Uh, he's an artist who kind of we bonded over and when we were first... Uh, first dating, like this was an artist that we really came together over, someone who was just deeply special to us. And he brings so much of himself to the role. He brings so much of himself to the movie, writing the music and sort of uh, just infusing it with his sensibilities. He's got this otherworldly androgynous beauty that he brings to it. And there's also any scene where he's sitting around with his goblins in his palace and even throwing a baby up in the air, there is a sense of safety about it um, that watching it today, it's like, I don't ever fear for that baby's comfort or security because David Bowie is holding it and in between takes, he probably was cooing at this baby like it was the most beautiful thing he'd ever seen. There's just a sense that like, uh, even though he's playing the antagonist, he has this kind of reassuring care that he brings to those scenes with the with the child, who is, of course, Toby Froud, um, the son of Brian Froud, the art director, whose work inspired both The Dark Crystal and this movie. So uh, I just wanted to mention that uh, there's so much to his character, but 
just that sense of like uh, benevolence that he brings to those particular scenes and to the music is really special and doesn't at all take away the sort of fearsome nature of him as an antagonist. Yeah, I mean, I agree with all stated points about the sexiness, about the awesomeness, and about the iconicness. I mean, the this movie, if it doesn't have David Bowie playing Cherith, I just don't think it works. I think that is really what makes this movie shine. You take all of the beautiful puppets, all of the amazing story, you have the great coming of age of Sarah, but if David Bowie is plucked out of this project, I do think it crumbles in on itself. And might have more of a reputation like a Dark Crystal, which has its dedicated fan base, but generally speaking, isn't a beloved household movie the way that The Labyrinth is. But talking about the character, Jareth, a few things that I kind of want to point out here um, in, 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 in how he is framed as the antagonist. So Jareth as the character seems to have control over space and time at will. And he uses this power very despotically. He is absolutely a tyrant. This is the guy who has a gigantic robot army or robot guard guarding his um, front gate that just tries to literally chop our heroes in half. He's someone that will throw a character like Huggle into permanent bog of eternal stench uh, just because another character dared to kiss him. He is really, if you really think about his actions as a character and not the, just the charisma of his performance, he is an awful, awful, evil tyrant. And I think when one of the lessons that I take from this movie is, in particular from a contemporary 2019 lens, is how do you stand up to a despotic tyrant? What do you do? What is the ability? What ability do you have to strip them of their powers? So on one point, it's tactile. You have to navigate the minefield that the tyrant puts in front of you because the tyrant will build traps. The tyrant will not play fair. The tyrant will, you know, speed up and slow down time if they can just to set their will against you. But at the end of the day, I think the most um, prescient lesson for me, at least understanding the quote unquote politics of Labyrinth is that you have to strip the tyrant's source of power away, which is your consent. And as soon as Sarah stops consenting to Jareth's games, that's the very moment where this almost godlike evil wizard suddenly becomes powerless. And she finds herself transported back at home with her brother safely asleep. And I think that's a powerful lesson to learn that the best way for us to stand up to the tyrants is to say, you don't have the power. We have the power and we will no longer permit you to run amok and like shoot cannon balls that have live chickens in them for Christ's sake. <laughs> oh my God. That gave me goosebumps, Derek. That's really well said. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah really, really good. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. And that's important to know, important to like, uh, acknowledged to because we can easily get lost just in his eyes uh, and get lost in the music and forget that there is this very, uh, very dangerous and very insidious thing that he is doing, manipulating this young woman and that she is able to um, be freed from this snare is really remarkable. Like it's really 
an outstanding thing that this character is able to do. And every great despot in history was charming as fucking hell. Of course. You know, you don't become Caesar because uh, people dislike you, right? You become Caesar because people freaking adore you and people freaking love you, right? You mm. don't become Napoleon because the French Revolution wants to chop your head off. No, you become Napoleon because the people of France really love you. And I think the love that we feel for Jareth, which is part and parcel with our love for David Bowie, which we should feel because David Bowie is a true gift to the universe. Um, like, I'm so glad I got to live in a time where there was a David Bowie. But we have to remember, like, hey, he is really terrible. He kidnaps a baby for no reason. We don't even know why he does it, other than Sarah just accidentally wishes it, but not even, like, genuinely or sincerely wishes it. She accidentally wishes it. And so he does this. He offers Sarah a glimpse into her dreams to pacify her so that he could then just possess this young girl and essentially just, like, treat her like his child bride. And, like, he's really fucking terrible. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and he gaslights her and he makes her believe that she is the one with the power by making that speech about how, oh, if you just listen to me, if you just do as I say, I will be your slave. But if you actually listen to the words of that, it's like, be my slave and I will pacify you somehow with gifts. Uh, he even passes along to her a kind of poisoned uh, peach, right? It's a peach that she eats it's that Hoggle ends up giving yeah. her. Mm -hmm. uh, and she eats that peach and is disoriented from it. Very much reminiscent of the Persephone and Hades myth where Persephone eats a couple of pomegranate seeds and then can't leave the underworld. So there is this sense that he's luring her into this trap, manipulating her, uh, and trying to uh, convince her that she does not have power or is not enfranchised. And it's up to her to realize that she is, in fact, enfranchised. Right. And to me, it's like the it's the Tyler Durden effect. When you watch the movie Fight Club, you fall in love with Brad Pitt because his performance is so freaking fantastic that you forget that Brad Pitt's the bad guy. You're not supposed to love Brad Pitt in Fight Club. He's supposed to lose. And same thing, I think, applies to Jareth as the antagonist of this movie. He's supposed to lose. He is so David Bowie all the way, and you absolutely love and adore it. But we have to be mindful of we do live in a world with aspiring despots, and their smile and their charm is enticing. And all they ask is that you love them, and they say they'll be a slave for you, but really what they want is to control time and space. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Any other thoughts on Jareth? Anything uh, anyone else wants to say before we move on? Um, yeah, I should just literally just obviously listening to you guys just uh, talking. Um, can I just say this is why I listen to the Midnight Myth, because you would never kind of get this kind of um, this kind of discussion on any other podcast that I ever listened to about how you can link this, you know, this character of Jareth to character, you know, to, well, not characters because they're real. I don't know why I said characters, but, you know, to real historical tyrants, you know, and, and genuinely I never made that link before. Obviously I know that Jareth is essentially the antagonist. He is the bad guy. Um, and it's, I guess it's my, you know, it's a comment on me, 
I guess, more than anything, that I always tend to go for the bad boy kind of guy, uh, you know, that these these movies kind of portray. Um, but I think you're absolutely right. He is, he is a despicable tyrant. You know, he wants to control anything and everything. Um, and it, it just so happens that he wants to control this this young woman who he believes is weak, um, you know, and he can charm her and, you know, he can tell her that she's beautiful and that, you know, he loves her and, you know, coding all of these messages to try and essentially get her to um, become his. Um, and and it is really fascinating. If you do look at those um, historical leaders, um, very famous kind of uh, tyrannical leaders of the past, and the way that they obviously got their followers to follow them was to do very much a similar thing. And genuinely, I hadn't even put the two together, but this is why I listen to The Midnight Myth, because you guys always put stuff together in such a way. Um, so I think I think that's wonderful. I just, yeah. I just wanted to say I thought that was amazing. <laughs> well, it's really because I had, you know, I put myself into debt to get a degree in history, so I have to bring everything back to ancient Rome. Otherwise I feel like I didn't get my money's worth out of my college education. Right, right, right. <laughs> but to your point, Em, the movie is courting that ambiguity. The movie wants us to be seduced by him and it wants us to go on Sarah's journey with her uh, because she's also seduced by him. Uh, it mm -hmm. wants us to follow her and be almost snared by his trap and then find our way out in our own power, just like Sarah does. And I think that's a really... Uh, kind of wonderful lesson for all of us to learn together. You know, some of the inspiration for the character and the design and the costuming and the makeup of Jareth was the Byronic hero, the romantic, like Heathcliff upon the moors, like the very ambiguous, dark, tall, dark, and handsome, uh, deep and powerful lover with that incredibly disturbed and tragic mind underneath. It wants us to have that internal conflict about do I love this man or do I hate him? And then we mm. have to find our way out of that at the end. Yeah, totally, totally agree. Um, mm. Speaking of David Bowie, I think one of the things that makes this movie so amazing it's, is it's amazing music. It's very much a musical. And uh, I want to just open this up. I want to talk about the music and I want to start, I guess we'll start with you, Em, since you are our guest of honor here. Do you have a favorite song in there? And if so, tell me what it is and why. I do. Um, and I think, first of all, I think that there's there's the go-to song that I think everyone does go to um, yeah, in Labyrinth. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I will say, first off, that I think the music is outstanding in this movie. Um, I think it's... I mean, it's the music is magical. The movie is magical. The, the music is so befitting of this, this um, fantasy land. I think it's absolutely gorgeous. But I'm not going to go for the obvious one. Um, I my favourite song um, and scene actually. It's kind of a bit of both because the scene is um, the kind of magical masquerade ball that. Sarah is transported to when she eats the peach um, and it's kind of a bit of a fantasy land and the song is As the World Falls Down um, and it's a song that does hold a very special meaning to me personally um, and I just think it's such 
beautiful song. Um, I'm not a dancer. Um, I like to think that I am when I'm in the club, but I'm not. Same. Um, <laughs> exact same. <laughs> but I've always wanted to learn to, you know, dance um, like a, a proper waltz or a Viennese waltz or, you know, one of those kind of epic, romantic, um, classic ballroom dances. Um, and I feel like As the World Falls Down is it's just such a perfect song to have a little waltz too. Um, I know they, they do have a little dance in the scene. Um, I think the scene itself is really special because it's obviously Sarah is kind of confused. She doesn't know where she is. She is looking for someone that she knows and she happens to, to eventually find Jareth, who's kind of hiding um, in between all of the other masqueraded dancers. And... Um, and it is very much kind of the very overly romanticised part of the movie because that's when you do genuinely feel this connection between the two characters. Um, and I just, I think it's an absolutely gorgeous track. It genuinely means so much to me. Um, I am a very emotional person, <laughs> just generally. Um, anyone who's listened to my podcast will know that I cry all the time at yeah, everything. So, so do we. But, <laughs> But the, 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 this movie makes me tear up on quite a few occasions, um, but it doesn't, it makes me tear up more, I think, when this piece of music comes on, because I think it's just, I think it's gorgeous. I really do. It's, um, it's my favourite. I love it. It's a beautiful piece. And that scene is just so dreamy. The costumes and just the, the effect of the sort of otherworldliness of this masquerade ball it's just is so iconic and feels just so uh so romantic and it's also the one point in the story where we almost see sarah really fail like you don't ever think uh jareth's gonna get the better of her at least for me when i watch it even from as a kid you're like sarah's got this then she eats the poison peach and enters into this world, this beautiful song plays, and she's you get the sense that she's living in one of those crystal balls, right? Yeah. And this beautiful song plays, and she's at this beautiful party, and sometimes things aren't what they seem. And this beautiful party of people dressed up as goblins are actually real goblins, you know? And she's got to break herself out of it. I think it's great. And I love the scene that follows it, too, with this sort of like goblin pack rats that are trying mm -hmm. to like convince her. They take her into like a pseudo one of her own home where she has to face her own room and she has to decide that the things in this room are actually junk. And she, um, you know, has to tear it down and has to remember, Hey, I, I'm, I'm actually a knight on a quest here. I can't be sidetracked by anything. I can't be duped and I've been drugged and it's time for me to like fight back. And I love that part too. Yeah. She has the chance kind of to embrace the fairy tale. She's always wanted her life to be in that bubble, in that masquerade ball. And then she chooses to go back to the real world, even if that real world is the labyrinth. But yeah, that, that masquerade ball and that song are indicative of like the version of our lives that is a fairy tale. That's just, yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful song. Yeah. Laurel, favorite song and why? Oh, okay. So I'm also not going to go with uh, the obvious choice, but 
for a very specific reason. I'm going to pick uh, Underground, which is also like the opening title um, song. And the reason I love this one is not only because it's a great tune, um, but because the backing track, the backing vocal of this, as they were recording uh, the music for this movie, David Bowie was recording in London and he called up his old friends to be like, hey, would you do David Bowie a favor? Would you come in and sing a backing track? And some of those friends happened to be, oh, you know, Luther Vandross and Shaka Khan and Whitney Houston's aunt and like all of these just incredibly powerful, amazing singers who never never do backup. Like they are, are like some of the greatest singers who ever lived. And they were like, yeah, I'll do backup for David Bowie in a puppet movie. Um, so I love that song for that reason specifically. I mean, David Bowie calls and says, I need you to do a thing. You say, yeah, of course I'll do that thing. David Bowie, the man who fell to earth needs a favor. Absolutely. (laughs) Totally agree. I'm going to pick my favorite song and I'm just going to say this. I'm basic as shit. All right. Like, my favorite song is Dance Magic because, I, one... We were saving it for you, Derek. Oh, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> thank you. Uh, one, um, I, I just happen to think it is the song of the movie. It's so David Bowie. It's so much fun. And it solidifies to me the the sort of beginning part of this movie is punctuated by this really fun, really upbeat song that says that music is its own kind of form of magic, which I really love. And I mean, the lyrics are just so much fun and so crazy. When David Bowie finally you know, passed away, my sister, who is a huge Labyrinth fan, we saw it together as children. She's two years older than me. She sent me a text saying, you know, you remind me of the babe. And to date, at any point in time, my sister and I will look at each other, usually in the middle of a really bad fight that there's no way out of because, you know, we're brother and sister, so we fight like cats and dogs. One of us will look at the other and go, you, well, you know what? What? You remind me of the babe. And the other will, res- will respond, what babe? And it's been a, you know, just a part of my life for as long as I can literally remember sharing that song with my older sister. So it has to be my favorite song. That's wonderful. That's yeah, that's so good. And I imagine that I'm not alone in that. I think there are plenty of people like we can throw it out on Twitter, which we have. You remind me of the babe. And suddenly, (laughs) yeah, yeah, there's this whole thread and everybody is just like writing the lyric after lyric of this song because this song is just so iconic. So I, I I've got to go dance magic. I love it. I love it. Yeah, it's it's incredible, really, isn't it? That a song from a movie that actually didn't do that well, um, you know, when it was first released and it's kind of gradually built up this cult following. And now it's this movie is so iconic and so loved and so respected by pretty much everyone. I don't think there's anyone who hates this movie or dislikes it. Um, I think that you can that everyone remembers it fondly. And I think it's so incredible that on a platform like Twitter, where, you know, quite a lot of the people are considerably younger, (laughs) I think, um, than the rest of us, that all you have to do is is write what six words. You remind me of the babe. And everyone knows everyone knows straight away what to reply. You always reply what, babe? And it's I think it's 
it just shows how magic this movie actually is. And I know that I'm using the word magic and magical a lot. Um, it's because I'm British and we have very limited vocabulary. But <laughs> it genuinely, it it genuinely is a wonderful experience to have a movie that just resonates so much with everyone that that you can write six words and instantly people will know what to do and what to say. And I think I think Dance Magic Dance, I think it is genuinely one of the most brilliant songs from a movie ever. Um, but, I, I yeah, I think where, as movie soundtracks go and when you're talking about musicals, um, there's not many musicals or, you know, songs from movies that you can say the first six words and literally everyone will know the rest. Yeah. I totally agree. It's a, it is, a, it's such a unique experience that what this song and the life this song has had. And I mean, that goes directly back to David Bowie without David Bowie doing that song in the middle or beginning part of this movie. It's not the same movie you plugged in, you know, Freddie Mercury. I love queen. And I think Freddie Mercury is amazing. Couldn't do it. Prince, I think Prince is an immensely talented artist, but you put him in that. I'm sorry. He's no David Bowie. Only one person can do. You remind me of the babe. And that had to have been Bowie. And I just absolutely, I'm just gushing at this point about how much I adore it. It's hard not to. And of course, that's also this wonderful scene in the lair with all of the like tiny little goblins dancing around David Bowie and he's completely committed to it. Like he's totally in there with these goblins and they are alive with him. It's just a a wonderful, wonderful image. Yeah. So we'll be going for a little while. I have a few more things that I want to bring up here. So let's, uh, if it's okay with everybody, let's go out Mm -hmm. a favorite song. I want to know, Em, do you have a favorite puppet? And if so, tell me why. Well, the thing is, is when you talk about Labyrinth, there's so many amazing puppets. Um, I think it's really difficult to pinpoint one. But I think if I had to pinpoint one, um, again, I'm probably not going to go for the obvious because I think there is one very specific obvious one. Um, But I think I would go for Ludo because I think the character of Ludo is firstly such... um, such a wonderful kind of misdirect when Sarah hears these roars um, and she thinks, obviously, oh, you know, this this could be bad. And she could, then she kind of stops and thinks and realises, well, actually, not everything is as it seems in this place because she's learning. She's learning that just because something sounds bad, it doesn't necessarily mean it is bad. And so she goes to investigate and she finds this wonderful, massive furry creature that's being tormented uh, by these horrible little goblins with little teethy things on sticks, which is horrendous. I hate things with teeth. Um, And she helps Ludo get down and he's just the sweetest, kindest, loveliest friend. He's obviously um, a friend to the rocks, which comes in handy a lot kind of going forward. But I think that obviously the sheer size of the Ludo puppet I just think it's incredible that there's obviously someone in there, you know, who's, I don't know how tall the the person is who's in there. I imagine they are quite tall, but then they're covered by this massive uh, puppet body with all of this fur. And they've, they've still got to obviously, they've 
got people who are controlling the the face and everything. I just think the Ludo puppet is is absolutely incredible. But I think also that the character of Ludo is just so wonderful and so memorable. Um, um, so I think I know that's probably not the obvious choice, but I think I would pick Ludo because I think that. I don't think anyone else will pick Ludo, well, basically. Is yeah. <laughs> and there's so much about the creature design that informs the character. It's like you have this like monstrous big creature with horns and then like you actually look at its face and it's just like a bulldog. It's like it just wants to be loved. Yeah. And you you have this like big impression, but then this very sweet... Uh, demeanor that plays against that impression. And the creature design, I think, assists that in a, a lot of ways. It's beautiful. Yeah, Ludo is an amazing character with a fantastic superpower. The ability to talk to the rocks um, and to command the rocks is pretty cool. I think it is also reminiscent, we talked in our Dark Crystal episode, that Jim Henson was really into New Age philosophy and one of the ten like um, tent poles, I would say, of New Age philosophy is that everything has a little bit of a soul to it. And I think Ludo being able to talk to rocks means that there's something sentient about the rocks, which means it has some kind of a soul to it. And I think that's part of Jim Henson's New Age philosophy. And it also comes in incredibly useful when, you know, you find yourself surrounded by a goblin army to be able to command rocks to uh, help fight them. Yeah, that's awesome. What are your, uh, what's your favorite puppet, Derek? Oh, I'm going next. Oh, yeah, okay. So. Oh, you flipped it on me. Okay. Yeah. My favorite puppet is Sir Didymus. Yes. Um, my fa- for a variety of reasons. One, not the most sophisticated of the puppets. I think that goes to like Hoggle or Ludo. Those are really complex puppets. Sir Didymus is more like a traditional Muppet. Um, but I just love that there's a dog who rides a dog who is a knight who like is just so unbelievably brave, almost naively and stupidly brave. I really enjoy that he is the last piece of their adventuring party that they need to bring together. And I love the fact that like I see myself, if I'm ever surrounded by enemies being like, all right, I accept your surrender, you know? And I just love that he is so fierce. He is so brave. I think he's also a really cool looking puppet. I'd love to know how he lost his eye, but he has an eye patch, which I think is really neat. And he has Ambrosia, his dog, which is fantastic. Yeah, he's a really funny puppet uh, because his dog Ambrosia is also like in half the scenes, he's a real dog. And in the other half, he's a puppet. So it's just kind of like they switch it out based on what they need to actually show. But just the fact that a fox rides a dog. Um, fun fact about Ambrosius, uh, as we said, Sarah has an old English sheepdog named Merlin that we see in the beginning of the movie. And then Ambrosius is an old English sheepdog. And Ambrosius is sometimes another name for Merlin. I forget if that's uh, Geoffrey of Monmouth or Robert de Boron. I forget which author calls him sometimes Ambrosius. Um, so there's this sort of mirroring happening there. Otherwise, there's always like the, the character of Ambrosius Aurelianus, who is part of the Arthurian legend, uh, sometimes is historically referred to as one of the possible um, real historical Arthurs out there. So just my fun little Arthurian legend facts here, but I just love that kind of mirroring that happens there. Yeah. Well, and when you take an oath to do something, 
right? So to, to Sir Didymus, he takes an oath. Nobody crosses this bridge unless he has, they have his permission. He takes that so sincerely and he takes it so seriously. That's like an oath's an oath. That is my oath. And I will defend it and I will fight to the death, even if it doesn't make any sense at all. And I just, I love that there's a sense of optimism, but there's a sense of duty. And I, I think he, yeah, he's my favorite. Yeah, he's Sir Lancelot. He is a truly great knight. And, <laughs> and he, he takes everything so literally as well, which yeah. I think is really wonderful to have a character that is so literal. Um, and also just talking about Ambrosius, I I love the fact that puppet Ambrosius looks nothing like real oh, Ambrosius. God. I love the fact that that they're clearly so different. They didn't they didn't go out of their way to like make a real looking dog puppet. Um, they just have this dog puppet. And I, I actually really love the fact that you can tell it's puppet Ambrosius. It's so um, funny. It's, it's, it's just it's so really, funny. It's charming, actually, that you've got this kind of disparity between the real dog and the puppet dog, and they bring the puppet dog out when they need to, and then they bring the real dog out. I just think, I think the whole Sir Didymus and Ambrosius, I think that together, I think that they're... They're great because Ambrosius is kind of the voice of reason, really, for Sir Didymus, because Ambrosius is the one who's like, I'm not doing that. What are you talking about? And Sir Didymus is a bit gung-ho and he's like, right, let's do this. Let's fight, you know, and, and <laughs> I think I think their partnership is is so wonderful. So, yeah, I think Sir Didymus is great. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so Laurel. Um, I'm going to go with something kind of out of left field here, but in watching like the world of Jim Henson sort of making of the labyrinth videos that we did in preparation for this, um, something that really struck me, um, I've said this on the podcast before I have a background in puppetry. I'm not by any means a master puppeteer, but I have worked in a couple of different techniques. And one of the things that just really caught me off guard and was really amazing to me in terms of the craft were the helping hands, um, those are, uh, obviously human hands with these sort of painted latex gloves over them. So they're manipulating, uh, with all of their digits, these kind of very, uh, expressive and yet difficult to work with puppets and they're all working together. So you get like two or three people to a face, you've got like five or six hands coming together to, uh, create something that looks like a human face that can open its mouth, that can breathe. Uh, and there's something about that collaborative effort on the part of a bunch of different people to create this. The fact that we as viewers can look at that and see a human face that is just to me exactly what the magic of puppetry is. Uh, and it's just so creative. It's so ensemble based. Uh, I'm just kind of in awe of the craft of the helping hands. Wow. So, all right, I have to open up a new topic. Because we didn't talk about Huggle? No, I, I, <laughs> I figured this would be our Huggle segment where we would talk about him. Um, One, that's amazing. I totally love everything you said about the helping hands, but we can't really do justice to this movie without talking about the other main character, who is Huggle. Uh, Jim yeah. Henson himself said that this was the most technically complex puppet he ever did. He's so sophisticated. And be I mean, wow. Yeah. And because of that, they rewrote the script to make him a bigger part of the movie because of all of the work it took to bring this character to life. So let's talk Huggle. Uh, M, what do you think of everyone's favorite coward? 
I think Hoggle is, I mean, obviously, like you said, a technical marvel. Um, the, the, just the sheer level of skill that went into making this character come to life. Um, so there are six people that we know of. Um, so there was a, a little person called Shari Weiser who was in the suit and it was Brian Henson who did the voice. Um, Annie did the mouth puppetry as well. And then there were four other people who basically remotely controlled Hoggle's face, um, which is, I mean, an incredible feat anyway. But when we're talking about a movie from the 80s, I just think, I mean, wow. Just just generally, I, I think he's an incredible achievement. Um, and I think the character as well, um, because Hoggle is selfish um and hoggle is a coward and hoggle is basically the person that well really the only person that sarah has in the labyrinth um and to be honest he's not really anyone that she can trust um because he's either out for himself or out for jareth um but mainly he's kind of out for himself because he just doesn't want to get on the wrong side of Jareth because he's afraid of him. Um, and I kind of feel like Hoggle is... Hoggle's really interesting because you can see at the start, Hoggle, when we first meet him, he's, you know, essentially killing these fairy folk yeah. um, with, a, with a spray like you would insects in your garden um, and he's kind of just spraying them and they're... Um, you know, falling down dead. And Sarah's like, well, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing to these fairies? And Hoggle basically treats them as if they were vermin. And it turns out that fairies aren't actually very nice, that they will bite you. Um, and this is obviously the first real introduction that Sarah has to the labyrinth. And not everything is as it seems. You know, she sees fairies as these beautiful creatures who will help her. But actually, it turns out they're pretty monstrous. Um, and Hoggle is basically doing his bit for uh, pest control, I guess, um, <laughs> you know, in order to, to get rid of them. Um, but Hoggle, yeah, he's, he is interesting because you immediately realise that he's not to be trusted. But yet, I think Hoggle's one of those characters that you, you kind of can't help but love. Um, because he does always kind of eventually find his way back and he always eventually helps Sarah. Um, and often it's kind of against his own better judgment, um, which I find quite interesting. It's almost like throughout the movie, Hoggle starts to grow a conscience. Um, you know, he literally starts with zero because he's all out for himself. And as the movie progresses, he actually, you know, finds that, he likes this girl. He wants to help her. Um, and he actually starts to, like I say, grow a conscience and actually realise that, well, he needs to be a bit more selfless um, and not be so afraid of Jareth. Because if Sarah can reach a point where she's not afraid of him, then surely Hoggle can. Um, but I, I do genuinely love Hoggle. I think he's, I think he's a great character. Um, but as well, it's, it's Sarah's story. It's her journey. It's her coming of age story. But 
every character, what's great is every character kind of does go on a little journey of their own as well. And Hoggle's kind of the main one who also goes on a journey similar to Sarah in, I guess, just becoming uh, a better goblin at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah, a better goblin. <laughs> he becomes a better goblin. Absolutely. You know, I I love the character too for all the reasons that you stated. A few things I want to point out here is that Sarah gets to the labyrinth and it is it's a one-time thing, right? Huggle lives under the thumb of this tyrant. He is right to be afraid of him because Jareth is a fucking evil bastard. So he lives in this world, this hostile and threatening labyrinth all of the time and is considered to be an agent of Jareth's who he deploys to as a trap, one of his many traps for Sarah. And one thing that I think is just remarkable, very few people, goblin or human, have the self-awareness to look at a a relative stranger and tell them honestly and sincerely what their character defect is. And Huggle is able to be like, you have to understand, Sarah, I'm a coward. And as a coward, Jareth scares me. So you have to understand, I'm going to do things because I'm afraid of this person, even if they're not right. And I think that's really amazing that he is that self-aware that he can say that to another character and that despite all of that, he finds the courage to really eventually stand up against this tyrant Jareth who has done nothing but torture, like demean, like Jareth knows his name. And let Jareth knows his name is Huggle and he refuses to call him by his name while at the same time commanding him to go out there and work his machinations against an innocent girl, which Huggle knows is wrong. And like, imagine your boss, whether that's you work in a political system, a business environment, just constantly calling you the wrong name, what that must do to you psychologically and the power that Jareth wields over him. And I love that Huggle turns that on its head and finally decides that he is going to stand up against Jareth and it's Sarah's leadership that he really needs. And I think that's awesome. Oh, that's great. Yeah. All right. So before we wrap up, I want to ask one more question of the group. Any more thoughts on Huggle? Anyone? No, I'm good. All right. Does uh, M, we'll start with you. Do you have a favorite scene in this movie and tell me why? Yes. Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, the uh, the ball um, specifically, because I think it's just so ethereal and um, lovely and obviously the music. And and I think because we've also talked about the, the connotations between the um, what actually happens sort of before and after this scene, I think is really, really um, it's, it's kind of the pinnacle point of the movie for the character of Sarah in that she is essentially drugged um, by an older man, which, <laughs> I mean, sounds crazy. Um, but she, and she ends up in this in this dream world and she can choose to stay or she can kind of stand up and realise that there's something wrong and that she needs to get out. Um, and, but in the meantime, it's, it is this kind of very romantic ballroom with a lovely dance and with all of these beautiful people and she's obviously looking beautiful and he's looking incredibly handsome and um 
But yeah, it's it's a pivotal point for the movie because I think this is finally where Sarah is starting to come to the realisation that she can say no and that she has the power to say no. And the power to say no is an incredibly um, incredible, incredibly incredible? Yeah. What is wrong with my words today? It's incredibly incredible. Um, but it, it, it's, it's such a bold statement to say no. And one thing that I credit this movie with is its empowerment message. Um, and I know Laurel's obviously spoken about it a little bit as well, in that it's so important to be able to say no and, and mean it. Um, and I, being, you know, a, a grown-up, essentially, I still find it so difficult to say no to people. Yeah. Um, you know, it's the hardest thing to say, um, even if it's just someone coming to your door and saying, do you want to sign up for whatever? I find it so hard to say no. Um, I find it even harder if it's someone that I know. Um, and for... A young woman like Sarah, who's 15, 16 years old, to turn around and essentially say, no, she doesn't want this. You know, she doesn't want to be in this dream world anymore. I just think it's so powerful. Just that one word is so it has so much power within it. And and I think it's quite in, interesting as well when we get to kind of the final lines and you have no power over me, because I think the word no is such a powerful word. And. And I think it, it for me, it kind of all stems from this particular scene because this is, I think, her finally realising the power that she has. Um, and so I think it's a beautiful scene, but I think it means so much for the character and for the movie. I feel that so deeply. Um, and, and the fact that she's able to get into a place where she can say no uh, and that this movie tells us that we can say no. If Sarah can do it, we can do it, right? It's also... It's her saying no after she's kind of already said yes, too. So she begins this movie by saying, I want the goblins. I wish the goblins would take my brother away. And then she changes her mind and she's allowed to change her mind and have and still be respected, like and still have her choice respected. So there's something powerful about being able to say, I made a mistake. I revoke consent please respect that I am revoking consent. And I appreciate that this movie lets her have that and lets yeah. us know that we are allowed to demand that and that we are in the right for demanding that. I think that's, and that's another reason why this movie is so powerful today, why this movie means more today, I think, than it ever has. Yeah. Well, yeah. 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 Agree completely. Well said. Uh, Laurel, do you have a favorite scene that you want to call out too? Sure. Uh, for me, th this movie shines um, in a lot of ways in the story and the characters, but visually the movie shines when it pays the most homage to Brian Froud and his work uh, and when it really embraces his arc direction and his creature design. So honestly, the, the scene that just gets me the most that I just love the most is in the first 15 minutes of the movie uh, when Sarah is debating whether or not she's going to wish her brother away. We get the uh, amazing shots of all of the goblin faces kind of crammed into the frame being like, did she say it? You have to say <laughs> I wish. And the little Muppets kind of running around the bedroom and hiding in the storm. It's just, 
it's it's such a, a a wonderful scene of suspense, and we can see the worlds kind of blending into each other. We start to see the creature design. All those faces together look like a page in one of Brian Froud's fairy books, which I always had uh, growing up in our house and would just go through his illustrations, just loving them. So uh, that feeling of anticipation and the world's kind of blending is the thing that I love the most about this movie. Love it. I think that's great. Um, For me, I guess I will go here. This was my favorite scene as a boy. I'm not going to say as an adult, it's still my favorite scene, but I definitely want to talk about it in the the Labyrinth podcast. Uh Uh-oh. It's the scene with all of the orange creatures who can interchange their body parts. (laughs) No, the fireys can fuck off. I really thought we were going to get out of this without talking about the fireys. I hate it. I can't believe you went there. I hate it. It's so weird. It makes little to no sense. So she's walking through this like forested land. Ludo just disappears. He just falls into a trap and is gone, presumably by Jareth. And then here are all of these creatures who what they do for fun is they interchange their body parts and they sing this really bizarre song and they don't understand why they can't take Sarah's head off. And as far as obstacles in a adventure go, I can't think of anything more creative or bizarre than that in a movie full of the most creative and bizarre obstacles. This one takes the cake for me, you know, like, and I, even as a kid, I loved that song. I used to sing it all the time. And I just thought that was like, as a boy, I was so like, I love that bit because it was so weird. And to date, I still think it's pretty great. I really thought you were going to go with, uh, with the bog of, wait, sorry, the bog of stench, the bog of eternal stench, bog of eternal stench. I thought you were going to go with fart jokes, but instead you went with my least favorite scene ever. It's really like, (laughs) it's really creepy. It's like, why are these creatures here? Why can they do this? Why do they think Sarah's head should come off? And essentially, they're going to murder her. What is this ritual sacrifice they're participating in for their fire god? Uh, it's pretty fantastic. All right. Yeah. <laughs> and But you know what, though? At the end of the movie, one of them is there in her room. This is true. She's comfortable mm-hmm. enough with them that she is happy with them in her childhood bedroom. So I think we have talked a lot about this movie. I want to just open this up here for any final thoughts at all. Um, We'll start with you, Em. Anything else that you want to share? Any thoughts, reflections? uh, What you got? Um, To be honest, uh, I've actually got quite a lot of other stuff in my notes, but I kind of feel like if I go through them all, uh, we'll probably be here for an eternity, um, you know, and uh, unfortunately, it's not only an eternity. So um, (laughs) I... I did want to briefly mention, I know we talked about Hoggle earlier um, and I meant to say, but I um, I, I forgot that um, the actual Hoggle puppet um, actually ended up getting lost on a flight um, and it ended up in Scottsboro, Alabama. Um, and it's actually still there. It's in their unclaimed baggage museum. So if anyone is in um, Scottsboro, Alabama and you are at the... Um, lost baggage uh, museum that they have there the genuine hoggle puppet is there um it was never kind of reclaimed by anyone 
Um, it is the genuine article, and he's he's there. He he lives in Scottsboro, Alabama. What a so- horrible, horrible <laughs> thing to accidentally find. Can you imagine? I mean, <laughs> opening the bag and seeing Hoggle's <laughs> face. I mean, you might you must have thought someone had died or something. Oh you know, would have, would have been terrible. Um, I mean, there's. I think there's so much that we could say um, about this movie. I think we've kind of covered all of like the major topics um, and what this movie does so well. Um, I want to just briefly mention um, the. So for Jareth, obviously, he, when we first meet him at the start of the movie, he's juggling some balls and we can make jokes about balls and him playing with his balls and all of that stuff. I don't get um, it. <laughs> <laughs> <Where>? But <laughs> the, I, I find that so fascinating because the guy who was actually doing the juggling was behind um, David Bowie. It's a guy called Michael Moshen. Um, he's obviously um, very adept with his balls. And um, so he was completely blind when he was basically like moving the balls in between the, the hands, um, which is just incredible. Um, yeah. And you can watch kind of the making of scenes where he's back there trying to make this happen without being able to yeah. see it. And David Bowie is just like, I'm trying to keep a straight face while he drops <laughs> my balls <laughs> yeah it's and yeah I, I i genuinely think this this movie brings me so much joy and i kind of feel like there are so many movies out there that have come out over the years that you can say oh well i'll watch it once and then i'll probably never watch it again because it doesn't actually do anything for me yes it's a great cinematic experience or it's a great story or whatever but you will say, well, that's it. I've watched it. I don't need to do it again. With a movie like Labyrinth, I don't know how many times I've watched this movie, but countless, countless times I've watched this movie ever since I was a kid. And it never gets old. You know, the the way it looks never gets old. The The themes of the movie never get old. The characters never get old. It's... I mean, Derek, you mentioned earlier about, you know, showing it to your future children. You know, it's a movie that I want to show my niece and nephews, you know. I don't, and my niece probably is about the right age because she's nine. So I think she's the right sort of age that she would actually sit and enjoy it. Um, But it's, it just brings back so many magical memories each time it, it, it just brings so much joy. And I think that is essentially why we go to the movies. That is really why we do what we do. You know, when we talk about movies on a podcast, we don't want to talk about a movie that elicits no reaction, you know, it, that, that there's no emotional response to it. It's just a um, piece of media that just happens to be on film. But with a movie like Labyrinth, it elicits so many responses of, you know, happiness sadness anger sexual awakening you know all of that you know all of those kind of feelings just kind of always come rushing back and it kind of goes back to early when Derek just said the name Jareth and it just brings a smile to my face and that is what that movie does you know that that is it in a nutshell it brings a smile to your face and that is that is just the pure essence of cinema really in my opinion Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> and uh, 
you know, thinking about what this movie means to me, I just come back to like, this movie tells me what I need to hear. This movie told me what I needed to hear, which is that I have more power than I thought I had. I, as a girl, as a woman, have the ability to take my life into my own hands and that I have responsibility and that I have uh, power, that I am I'm able to control my circumstances in my life. Um, and it also tells me that I am allowed to still believe in magic. Uh, you know, this, mm. this movie tells Sarah that she's, she's got to grow up, that she's got to put away childish things, that she's got to stop playing with toys or stop imagining herself in a fairy tale world. But it also says that it's okay to find comfort in those things when you need it. Should you need us, we'll be here, Hoggle and the puppets say. Uh, and it tells me that I'm okay to take comfort in things that comforted me as a child, like this movie. It tells me yeah. that I am allowed to take comfort in feelings of magic and childlike wonder. Uh, and that to me is the essence of cinema too. It's like there's, uh, there's an encouragement of finding a, a world more magical than your own that you can access that is good for you and good for your development and you can continue to have that thing. Well said. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. Yeah. I, my final thought, I just want to take a moment and show some appreciation and love for the creative genius of Jim Henson and the team of people that he put together to make things like the labyrinth. It reminds me that the ability to create a piece of artwork and to share that artwork for everyone else's entertainment, how powerful that thing can be. It can literally change the course of a person's life. It could take a, you know, kid from Kennett Square, Pennsylvania, such as myself, and introduce me to things like goblins, uh, fantasy, things like David Bowie as a musician, and how much that has carried with me throughout my years in moments of intense anger or sadness, I will always get to look at my sister and she'll know what to say. She'll say, you remind me of the babe. And it will bring a smile to my face. And yeah, I, I think we live in this amazing time where the right combination of technology and talent hit to produce a piece of artwork like The Labyrinth. And Jim Henson and the Henson Company, thank you, from the bottom of my heart for what you've given me, for what you've given everyone. Without, mm. without Jim Henson, this project doesn't exist. And how fortunate are we that we get to grow up in a time where Jim Henson was creating art. And I love it. Yeah. How fortunate yeah. are we to live in a time where like puppetry had its mainstream heyday? Like th there was a time and still is a time, arguably, that we can look at puppets and say those aren't just creepy things. Those are like literal manifestations of magic. The interplay between the audience and the puppeteer and the puppet is, is magic to me. And Jim Henson yeah. is, a, is the, like the, the poster child of that. Totally. So, and before we sign off here, tell the Midnight Myth listeners again, one more time, how can people find you and Midnight Myth listeners, if you like our show, which you do, cause you're listening to it, please listen to M show because it is Fan freaking tastic. So, M, how can everyone find you? 
Well, first of all, thank you very much. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that I'm fantastic, but if you guys say so, then I guess I will just have to take that. Um, yeah, if people want to find me, uh, obviously, like I said, verbal diorama. Um, I'm available, well, pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. So Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, basically all of the regular places. And yeah, um, always available on social media as well, just at Verbal Diorama. Um, and um, yeah, I I have genuinely loved coming on The Midnight Myth because I'm such a fan and I feel like I'm, I'm fangirling right now. But uh, I've I've had the best time. So yeah, this was this was. Awesome. I just wish we had longer. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, we could we could probably do this for another two hours easily. Yeah, easily. Um, yeah. In particular, when you're talking about the labyrinth. But thank you so much, Em. Um, everyone, please go out and subscribe to Verbal Diorama. And until next time, guys. You remind me of the babe. What babe? The babe with the power. What power? The power of voodoo. Who do? You do. Do what? Remind me of the babe. Hey! hey. <laughs> I saw my babe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it gets me every time. Mm-hmm.